Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you alpha geeks out there. Welcome to another sensational, fully electric Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Today we're going to take you on yet another tour into the future. Surprise, surprise. We'll be talking all about virtual reality headsets used in surgery, but for a really surprising reason. And we've got a special 21st century take on dental hygiene for that squeaky clean smile that would blow Mrs. Marsh's mind. Remember, like liquid gets into this chalk. And flicking towards the back end, there's a prediction for Australia's bright future and what it's going to take from Dr. Saul Griffith. And speaking of futurists and people with a hatful of cleverness, welcome to Matthew Dickerson. Matt, what's been happening this week? Well, James, it's not so much what's been happening this week, but what's been happening or going to happen next week. For the first time in about two and a half years, I'm going overseas. Oh, you're cutting the chains that bind and you're off the, you're off the leash. And you're off the overseas. leash, that's right. And the last time we went overseas, we tripped around, I think it was mainly Spain, spent about a month in Spain with the kids, tripping around. It was about January 2020 we got back and we were starting to plan our next trip and then, of course, a little pandemic came along, which put a mm. bit of a halt on things for a couple yeah. of years. But I'm really interested to see how things have changed in that time. I've flown domestically and there's been some better screening technology, things where you don't have to take your lap top out of your bag and put it through the scanner, which I absolutely love because it's always a pain pulling mm. out iPads and laptops and your phone and all the rest of it. Just leave it on your backpack and send it on through and hope that it comes out the other end in the same <laughs> condition that went in the first flight. But I'm interested to see how much things have changed in the whole process. Now, airlines and airports have had a bit of time with not a lot of traffic to maybe think about upgrading their systems, improving processes, mm. not just the scanning side of it, but getting rid of all those bits of clumsy paper, the visa applications, even back two and a half years ago, there were still bits that were on paper, still components you were expected to have on paper. Or when you're overseas, there were some airlines that let you do your boarding passes on your phone. Some didn't like that. Some didn't scan very well on the screen. You had to change your brightness on your screen and yeah, fiddle right. around with stuff. I'm hoping maybe with some degree of trepidation, I'm hoping that it all goes very smoothly and everything's been improved dramatically and it's just like a wonderful process that it all goes beautifully. But anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed the school um, school holiday traffic has died down a little bit. Well, thanks. I hadn't even thought about the school holiday traffic. So <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hopefully it's there. But yeah. the other thing... I, You've left yourself six hours to get through the airport, haven't you? I think that's the minimum you need <laughs> at this stage. No, no, it's all more efficient now, James. Sure, yeah, of course, better. Yeah. But the other thing that's happened in the last week or two has been back to you again with that lovely EV you've now got. And hey. I just happened to yeah. have a, a coffee with some people the other day that know you and, and your wife, and they were starting to talk about your EV and starting to talk about the fact they'd seen it and they'd seen your wife and had a bit of a chat to your wife about it. And it was just this process of that slow diffusion of information around any new technology. Now, of course, you've got... I was going to say, having a Tesla is an excellent conversation starter. <laughs> people, but it's not me saying, hey, I've got a Tesla, guess what? It's people going, I've seen you've got a Tesla. Well, I think a great way to start a conversation is when you pull up and charge a Tesla, people come over to you. Yeah, they do. EV owners or non-EV owners, they want to talk about it. That's they right. They want to come and say, what's the go with this? How does this work? All these myths. People have got questions. Yeah. Hopefully we've answered some of them along the way over our podcast, but people have got lots of questions and they want to know about it. Now, of course... There's that Everett Rogers diffusion of innovation graph, which I love, which starts off with those innovators at the very early part and then the early adopters, the early majority, etc. And I wonder about combining that with a concept that you taught me about, Dunbar's theory, mm. which is the maximum number of friends we can have, the 150, I think was the yeah, number so you that's mentioned. that's the Dunbar's number, yeah. Yeah, Dunbar's number. And so when you start to think about that number and then you start to think about that diffusion of innovation and then you get something new like an EV, how long does it take before the concept becomes mainstream. So in other words, it's very much early majority or the innovators that are getting it at the very beginning. But when does it become mainstream that it's just, it's no longer exciting to talk to you because yeah. you've got an EV, James. It's just, huh, everyone's got one of those. Combine that 150 number with that circle of friends that might want to talk to you about that new innovation and that concept of how many people in society are those early majority, et cetera. And I think, uh, and, and I'm going back 
that diffusion of innovation graph, I think those innovators and early adopters make up about 15% of our population. And then you kind of wonder how long does it take to get to the laggards? And the laggards are probably the bottom 16%. How long before we get to those people? How many people do you have to talk to before you get there? I remember in the early 80s, my brother and I, well, we were fortunate enough to have an aunt who travelled to Hong Kong and she brought back um, some Nintendo game watches. And this must have been 1981 or 1982. Game watch, those little simple button, LCD screen, uh, little... Uh, computer games yeah. and we were the first people in town to get them and we were like oh wow those guys you know they're so fancy with their Nintendo game and watches but it was uh, it was 12 months tops before they were just everywhere yeah, you know, right. kids all had them and, you know we'd trade them and and swap them and take friends uh, games home and play yep. them and well, yeah. that'll happen with EVs. You'll, you'll be just, everywhere, then you'll trade them, you'll swap them around. <laughs> we'll swap them around. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, look, that's interesting. I, and I don't know the answer to some of these questions. It's just something that I really speculate about that I, I often refer to the kind of ball of snow, the big snowball. You're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing, and then you get it up towards the top of a hill, mm. and then, oops, stand back, it's going to take it over. It rolls itself. And that's what happens, I think, again with EVs at the moment. There's a lot of pushing, a lot of people trying to get things happening. And at some point, it'll just be magic. It'll be just a click of the fingers and then, holy truth, everyone's got one now and they're just everywhere. It's just, what, you've got a petrol car? What happened there? And a bit like the Nintendo, you're the first to have it and before you know it, everyone's got it. Bingo. And I think it's going to happen despite the naysayers. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on there. Well, enough lollygagging. We better get into our first story. Now that drone technology is pretty much normalised, it makes perfect sense that for big jobs, you may need several drones at least. Or maybe... You could use a whole freaking swarm of drones. Why not? And now that 3D printing is normalised, we know that we can 3D print plastic and metals and proteins and cement. So it makes sense that for any build that's a bit too tricky for conventional means, maybe you'd 3D print it. Now, folks, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Well, if the answer is an emphatic yes, well, it will be emphatic yes, if you're thinking of employing a swarm of drones to 3D print buildings and stuff. Matt, this idea sounds like it's come straight out of Homer Simpson's notepad. But, uh, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? it just, <laughs> I could I just use thought... drones and drop cement on stuff and print myself a building. Surely there's a better way to do it. The gantry that we've talked about with other 3D printers makes a lot of sense. You set up the gantry, it goes along, squirts out something that looks like toothpaste. And yeah, you can watch videos of this. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it's amazing. Fascinating. But that setting up of that gantry, that's a bit of a pain, isn't it? You've mm. got to go and get some stuff stable ground and get it all set up and make sure it's correct and then right finally we've got it ready to go let's go for it well why bother with all that when you can have exactly you said a swarm of drones and And when we're talking swarms we're talking thousands yeah possibly i think in this stage they're just starting off with 10, 15 drones. Okay, no, no. I want to see thousands. I want to see thousands of the sky just buzzing. That's right. I don't want to black out the blue sky. (laughs) We'll we'll get there, I'm sure. But at this stage, they're just bringing small structures. And the idea here is that you don't have to set up the gantry for a start, but also you can get into some pretty difficult to get into spots rather than trying to transport the gantry in, put Mm. a container in, travel over those mountains, go uphill and down dale. That little house that you see on the top of that impossible to get to mountain, you think, wow, imagine the builders that had to get all the materials up there. Well, not only that, that, but if you're working, say, in the city on a building site with your gantry as well, you've got to still shift that thing around, and it's a fairly clunky sort of heavy thing to, to move around yeah. and navigate you know, very, various problems and whatnot. And I thought the interesting part here is how much concrete can a little drone carry? So mm. you've got to have this constant... A bite-sized piece. A bite-sized piece, that's <laughs> right. You've got to have this constant back and forth, and of course they've got batteries in them, but it sounds like they've got that part pretty well under control, and then they have another drone that has the job of just basically hanging around there, keeping an eye on things. Let's call him the supervisor drone. They've got a 3D depth-sensing camera on this particular drone, and that drone directs the other drones where to put the new bit of concrete wow. as they bring it back. So each <laughs> bit of concrete is put on. Yep, that's in the right spot. Off you go, the Jimmy. Foreman get the next drone. one. The foreman drone. That's right. So he sits there, does nothing according to the other drones. He d- Look at that foreman <laughs> drone. He's never carrying any concrete, is he? <laughs> He's wow. just watching us, keeping an eye. So about 10 minutes, they get out of the battery life. They come over. They take the... the concrete over, they put it on where it goes, come back, might do one or two trips, swap batteries, keep going. At the moment, there are humans involved, mainly in the battery swapping process, Mm. but it is, it's literally going across, picking up concrete, bringing it back, putting it where it needs to go. Obviously, it's wet, it's drying in that process. So at this stage, all the testing they've been doing has gotten up to about 15 drones working without running into each other. That's a bit of a bonus. 
actually building things quite quickly. Now, when you get to a large-scale building, I would imagine that surely a gantry, a larger device set up to build that larger building would make more sense. Mm. I think these are going to be of more use when you're trying to get into those hard-to-get spots, building something small, or emergencies, tsunamis, when you've mm. got emergency housing needed, rather than try and get across those roads that are damaged and they've got a whole bunch of debris across them, oh, yeah. well, set up drones and get in there to get some structures for people to live in until we can get in there and Build fix Build bridges, properly. perhaps, yeah. Build bridges, yeah, wow, imagine that. I don't know if they've gone that far, but the concept sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Yeah, Why yeah. not? It's just concrete. Well, um, yeah, I'm guessing that you, you're not needing, well, you're not having to worry about any of the scaffolding that you'd have to worry about yeah. with normal building and whatnot, and... Yeah, you just, wow. Well, imagine even doing things, say, for example, at Chernobyl, when you're trying to do some oh, of, the, yeah, of the, the work around there where you don't want people hanging around, and I'm not sure how well. well. I know they've already got robots um, that are doing that, and they, they've, they're building these enormous concrete sarcophagus. Yeah. And then they've got, they've got these things on track, so they actually build the sarcophagus to the side and then, and then just slide it, it across. Yeah. But, um, so imagine, forget about that, we just build it in situ. Yeah. Everyone stay, uh, say, 50 kilometres away or whatever the distance <laughs> might be. Don't know how well the drones handle the radiation there. Maybe some of the electronics on the drones start to have a bit of an issue, but surely they've got some sort of lifetime before they finally Well, expire. I think it's actually heat that's the issue for, for the electro... What is it? Oh, I'm uh, talking out of shop here. Being bombarded with ionising radiation, mm. then that probably doesn't help the electronics mm. on there. But anyway, interesting concept. And I just love what people do. They say, 3D printing? Sure. Drone? Sure. Why not? Let's put the two together. See how we go with that. And the creativity of humans, that's the thing that artificial mm. intelligence is going to have a problem trying to recreate because yeah. artificial intelligence follows algorithms to a certain extent, whereas humans just think of left-field things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to replace the human brain for initiative. Here's something that you'll that'll really clear up your halitosis. If your dentist has ever taken a shot at you for being a bit careless with your brushing, there may be some technology on the way to take it out of your hands completely. And by that I mean hands-free brushing with a swarm again of tiny little robots going crazy on your gnashes. Matt, we're not there yet, but the theory is there. We have the technology. Are you ready for a micro-robotic party in your mouth? It's actually been tested already on sample teeth, on dummies of teeth, not on humans, but they've actually set up structures. Here's a mould of someone's mouth and away you go. Go go crazy tiny little robots. We're talking robots, right? We are talking micro robots. Nanobots or something. Nanobots. They actually not only brush your teeth, but they can floss your teeth as well. (laughs) Now, we've seen things before that we've talked about that are essentially like a mouth guard that you put in your mouth and there's some bristles there and they go to town because who's got two minutes or three minutes or whatever the length of time you're meant to (laughs) brush your teeth? Of course, the dentist says, have you been brushing your teeth for two minutes, Matthew? Yes, sir, I have, thinking two minutes. That's a long time to be brushing your teeth. I've got got tech talk to go and do. I've got time to sit there and brush my teeth. So many other things I need to do with my hands. That's right. And so this idea is... You can just let these little micro swarm of micro robots go into your mouth and go for it. So there's been a a team at the University of Pennsylvania that's been working on this, and they've actually got the ability to, as you said, change shape, shape shifters, nanoparticles. They're basically taking some magnetic properties, some catalysts in there, and they go in your mouth, and they actually go around your teeth and do some hard work on your teeth, Protect your gums so you're not just hitting your gums with these same little micro-robots and then going in between your teeth to floss as well. It just sounds like a whole, as you said, party Mrs. in your mouth. Mrs. Marsh will be going crazy <laughs> right now. <laughs> Look, it does get in. <laughs> it does get in indeed. I wonder what Mrs. Marsh is up to these days. But So this is one of the things. Now, one of the things that we've seen in society in general is that if we can get dental care better, that's something that uh, low socioeconomic groups uh, suffer with. They don't seem to be great in their dental care. Mm. And dental care is one of the things that we know solutions. We know Mm. what we need to do and it makes quality of life so much better for people. If you've got a mouthful of teeth rather than Mm. a lot of missing teeth, that makes your quality of life better. But we still don't seem to be getting the message out there. And so part of the research here that they've been trying to work on is how can we make it easier? How can we make it less cumbersome? How can we make it so that you've got no excuse from the time you start growing teeth? Here's a process that everyone just says, okay, the same as drinking a glass of water, we just go and use these. Now, what so I. So hang on, when I, when I accidentally swallow some of these nanobots, <laughs> do they then go and floss my. 
lower going. You've got everything cleaned out, haven't you? <laughs> what I don't quite understand from all the research that I've read so far is how you get them into your mouth and then how you get them out. So mm. in other words, if I've got a mouth guard with bristles on it, that's pretty obvious. I've mm. put it in there, the bristles got to work and I take it out. But with these, when I've got these little swarm, micro swarm in there, how do they know they've done their job? Mm. And then, radio, we've done our two minutes or our 10 seconds, mm. time to get out now, buddies. How do they know that? That's what I haven't been able to work out. Yeah. I don't know. So, so don't swallow at all. I don't think for so. For about half an hour or <laughs> I don't maybe. think that's a good idea. <laughs> how do I how do I introduce them into my mouth and mm. then how do they get out of my mouth once the job's done? Or do they just dissolve away? Do they become so small they can go through your system properly? I just I, I read a lot on it. It's very early in the research and mm. maybe sometimes researchers like to tell bits about what they're doing, but not the whole story, because mm. other researchers might say I've just had a brilliant idea. It mm. just looks a lot like that other brilliant idea that someone else had. So I think they're keeping it a little bit close to their chest. The bottom line is that we are going to see more and more with nanoparticles, with micro-robots, with all these things yeah. that are working on getting into very small spaces and doing things together in some sort of colony concept. And these nanoparticles, yeah, they've got potential for boosting our immune system as well. Oh, look, nanoparticles, it just seems like we should put the word nano in front of everything now. Okay. Na nano podcast. There we go. Look at that. What a great podcast we've got. Might be a bit short if it's a nano podcast. But I think that's one of the things that people are using nanoparticles. It does get thrown around a little bit as a almost a pseudoscience term sometimes. Yeah. But the reality is we are seeing scientists work on smaller and smaller scales to see how they can manipulate particles that are very small. That's right. Well, it's time for my next nano introduction for our next nano story. Here at Tech Talk, we're right, right into wearable te uh, health tech, and we are pleased to announce that Garmin are stepping up their game with the first wearable blood pressure monitor. A sphygmomanometer, yeah, uh, if you want to go that far. Although I don't think it's going to be as cumbersome as your normal sphygmomanometer. So now, Matt, when I've finished my sixth kilometre, I'll be able to tell whether or not that really is a heart attack coming my way. Exactly right. And Garmin are trying to do a bit like Apple do. Apple love to own the ecosystem. They like you to have your phone and your iPad and your computer and your watch all in that one ecosystem because that means you're more likely to buy the next product they have. Mm. They don't want to make it compatible with all those other products out there <laughs> because then you might buy a different brand. And That's Garmin, right. as many companies do, they learn from their not so much competitors, but other companies, and they're doing the same. So Garmin have been famous for a long time for their trip computers on bikes. I still use a Garmin on my bike rather than using my I phone on my bike. watch right now. Okay, this is becoming an infomercial. <laughs> Sorry, oops, step back a bit there, don't do that. But they've got smartwatches, chest straps, smart scales, and, and so they've got a range of products, but this is just another one that they want to introduce into their line. So smart blood pressure monitor. Now, when you put the word smart in front of it, it just means that, it's a good marketing gimmick. No, it's more than that. It, ah. do, it does mean that it actually links into it's that a nano whole smart. array. <laughs> That's right. If you put nano and smart in front of anything, it'll sell. What is it? I don't know, a piece of dirt, but it's a nano smart piece of dirt. So the idea here is that you've surely, most people have seen now, that you don't have to have the idea of popping up the arm, putting the stethoscope on, listening to everything. These obviously just wrap around the arm. They automatically blow up and, and compress to get to the point where they can check your blood pressure. And that's you go and see a doctor now, they all do that as much as it looks impressive when they're pumping in with their hand to pump up the, the sphygmomanometer on the, on the arm, then it's not quite as good as yeah. the electronic one. What this does, though, is it does all of that in electronic format, but of course sends the data off for your own personal health profile. So you can see all of your information. You can see how far you've ridden on your computer. You can see how high your heart rate got. You can see what your uh, scales are showing your weight is. You can see what your BMI is because you've already put in your height in there. So you've got all this information. But another important part of that is your blood pressure. So mm. it's all in good to say, well, look, my resting heart rate is whatever. But that might mean you're really fit or really unfit, but it doesn't really tell you about what's happening with your blood pressure, which gives you a bit more of an idea of the health of your arteries. Yeah, it's all these things that we've got to put together to stitch together to work out what your health is. Yeah, that's Single right. Single numbers by themselves don't mean much. And that's it. It's all stitching it all together. And that's exactly what I think we're seeing a lot of now. We have talked about the wearables on the market. Now, I'm not expecting you're going to wear around this Garmin smart <laughs> blood pressure monitor. With a stethoscope. <laughs> and that's right. And, and just walk around and constantly know your blood pressure at any moment in time, but the idea is if you've got it at home, then just like scales, if you didn't have scales at home, you go, oh, do I want it from overweight or not? Mm, I'm struggling to get into these jeans, maybe there's an indication. 
blood pressure, you might be struggling to get up some stairs, you might be some indicators there, but having the cold, hard data to show you, mm. I think is really important. So that's exactly what this will do. It'll give you that data, it'll give you the information, you can collate all the information, and finally you might say at some point in time, I'm not looking great, I'm going to go and see a real doctor. Now, this particular device is not FDA approved, and FDA in America obviously, but mm. let's, let's take that as a, as a good place to go to somewhere to get some sort of recognition of some sort of value of a health device. It's FDA cleared, not ah. FDA approved. Right. Very subtle difference there. FDA cleared means that the manufacturer can demonstrate that the product's substantially equivalent to another product. So right. FDA approval is obviously just another level above that. That's kind of the gold standard. But at least mm. this one's FDA cleared. So at least that means FDA's looked at it and it says, you know what, it's probably about the same as other tests you'd get. So we're happy with that, but we're not approving it. But we want to watch it a, a little bit longer. Yeah, I'm not sure. Or they just might want to get paid but some extra money to be approved. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's how it works. <laughs> someone to sleep in the movies is as easy as dabbing a cloth with a, with a little bit of chloroform and letting the magic happen. All harmless and instantaneous. And who the hell needs 11 years of medical training to become a qualified anesthesiologist anyway? A bottle of chloroform and a rag, am I right? Now, the truth is that an anesthetic is essentially a poison that's delivered in a highly specific, very carefully calculated dose so that not only will you be blissfully unaware of the high-level tampering going on inside your body during an operation, but also you'll be able to conveniently wake up when it's all done. And I want someone with at least 11 years of experience under their belt for that kind of black magic, folks. Matt, surely in the second fifth of the 21st century, surely we're headed for an easier way to get knocked out for a medical procedure. Now, I want to know who the first person was that let someone say, I'm going to give you this drug, which is going to knock you out, but still be alive, make you forget what we're doing to you, but not forget what happened the, the hour before or the week before, and then wake up and everything will be okay. I think they just called it whiskey, didn't they? <laughs> Maybe in the early <laughs> days they did. But it is, you're right, it's a poison you're having injected into your system. You've got someone who's got an incredible amount of training there to monitor that and get it and right. it's not just a rag soaked with a bit of... <laughs> chemical. Are you telling me the movies aren't real? Please. Yeah. <laughs> Surely that's all it is. But let's go forward a bit. What other ways could we have to try and manipulate or trick our brain? But yeah, but what you said before, it, it, it's poisonous. And so you want to you want to reduce the amount of that you have to give. And that's it takes a lot of training to be able to get that right. That's right. You don't want not enough because someone's sitting there going, oh, no. I can feel that. Well, That's kind of hurting. You've probably heard of people waking up in surgery for an anesthesiologist who probably needed to think a bit harder about what they were doing. That's right. Stop playing on your iPad and come back and have a bit of a look. And then there's the risk of them not waking up at all. That's right. And so that's the next problem. And so, that's what yeah. I mean. Imagine that first I don't person. I want to scare anyone who's about to go into hospital and get an operation, by that's the right. way. So that's but that first person that did it, they're going, like, Yeah, I trust you, James. Just inject it into me. I'll see you in an hour or so. But you're right. The amount of drugs they take, obviously, or that's injected affects them and obviously you don't go and drive a car five minutes after surgery and people talk yeah. about uh, being under general anaesthetic can knock you out for days and weeks yeah. and, and not have you at your peak. So one of the things is how do we reduce it? Well, if you reduce it too far, it starts to hurt or mm. people wake up. But what they've been finding is they've been doing some testing with people wearing VR headsets. This is amazing. It is. And again, our brain is taking information in from a knife cutting into our skin, for example, in surgery, and our eyes and our ears. There's a whole range of things that our brain is taking in and processing that information to come up with, am I in pain? Should I run away? What's mm. going on at the moment? So they did some experiments and they said, obviously to the, to the people there, we want to distract you from the pain. So let's put a VR headset on. Let's actually have some really nice, calm. So this is a game you play with a toddler <laughs> when they go and stub their toe or hurt their finger, in, you know, in a door or something like that, so and you just try and distract them. We've got the brain of a five-month-old, maybe. Is that yeah. what you're saying? But this is exactly what happened here. They did. They put all this calming information, all these calming images there, and then they tried putting less anaesthetic in, less poison into the system. And oh, wouldn't what you like to be one of the guinea pigs? <laughs> no, that's right. So. The average conventional patient needed 750.6 milligrams per hour of the correct sedative. So that sounds like 
a number, fairly specific. You would think 750.6. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's based Sounds on like certain, an average, yeah. It does, based on a certain weight of, of a person. Yeah. That, that might have something to do with it. But that's kind of a specific number. So if, if you've trained for years and you say, hey, let's just try 200, someone would say, well, actually, remember that training you did? Mm. 750.6 seems to be the right amount. In this particular scenario, they managed to get people watching nature scenes, meditation-type music, to actually have 125.3 milligrams. So it wasn't a bit less. Wow. It was dramatically it's less. like a fifth. It's unbelievable. So that difference there, you think, well, how do they react to that? How do they go with that? Well, they were giving reports afterwards that, Again, everything seemed the same. I'm not sure how many times these people have been under GA, but effectively everything seemed the same. But more importantly, when they were recovering, they felt well enough to be able to get up and move around after 63 minutes using the VR headset compared to 75 minutes. Only a small improvement there, but Mm. that's still a a bit of an improvement. And you would tend to think that that would flow on as well. So the next day you would probably feel that little bit better as well. Yeah, you'd you'd expect with less anaesthetic in your system that uh, your recovery time would pick up. Yeah. So one of the things they're trying to work on now is, is it a bit of the placebo effect? They said Uh to some patients... We're going to put a VR headset on you during surgery. We're going to try and distract you. So they explained to them what was happening. And then they went in and lo and behold, they put the VR headset on and it distracted them. How do they get to the point where people don't notice they're putting a VR headset on? <laughs> That's a bit tricky. Yeah. But this is the thing. I think the next part they really want to do but I, I think even Even if it is the placebo effect, if it means that they don't still don't have to put as much anaesthetic in your body, who cares? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. right. Placebo if, effect or otherwise. That's right. So, and and you're right. The placebo effect is normally around seeing whether a certain drug works or not. But if yeah. this works via placebo Regardless. or it works via distraction, well, yeah. who cares? It's working, so let's keep it going. More experiments will happen. The experiments so far have been occurring over at St. Joseph, Joseph's Hospital in France. But again, I think once people hear about this and then once they start looking at it, I'm sure St. Joseph's will be getting phone calls from people across the world. How do mm. we try this? And let's face it, compared to what you pay an anaesthetist sitting there beside you, a VR headset, they're pretty cheap these days, so take your own in. If they haven't got it, they take your own <laughs> in and sit there with some nice meditation there. But this is a great combination between drugs that we know have got scientific evidence that work for specific reasons and electronics or technology to try and trick us. So what a great combo. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, I'm not going to lie... Teslas are pretty cool. I think we've covered that already today. <laughs> We're stoked with ours, I'm here to say, but we know that they're not perfect. They're nearly perfect, but uh, I had no idea there was a glitch in the windows. More specifically, I should add that tes- Teslas are yet to properly understand human fingers and how people don't like it when they get caught in closing windows. Matt, have you tested out this on yours yet? I haven't put my fingers in the windows and tried to wa- <laughs> and tried to up. close them. But let me just say, this is an important announcement, James, that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in the US has said, and I quote, the window automatic reversal system may not react correctly after detecting an obstruction. As such, these vehicles fail to comply with the requirements of Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard number 118 Power Operator Window Systems so we're issuing a recall for Teslas. Say what? Do I have to send mine back to the United States? And this is where Elon Musk is a bit annoyed. Officially, the NHTSA has issued a recall. Now, for those old-fashioned car manufacturers, when you have a recall issued for something like this, you do have to book in a time to find your local car dealer, a time that's convenient for you and for them to take your car in, have them fix the problem, whatever the recall problem is, wait around or go and do something else, blah, 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 and then get your car back. Incredible cost to the car manufacturer, Mm. incredible inconvenience to all those owners of those cars. Absolutely. And how many people don't worry about doing it because they haven't got the time to go around and do it. Well, now, we had that Takata airbag issue, yeah. didn't we? And that was a big one. How many of those are still out there at the moment I that wonder, haven't been yeah. fixed? There's probably a lot. So Tesla, as you said, are a little bit cleverer than the average bear. And they've said, please don't call this a recall. We fix problems like this at the cl- drop of a hat because we've got over-the-air updates. 
we've already fixed the problem. The next update that people have on their Tesla, because Teslas are connected to the internet, part of the internet of things, and you receive on a semi-regular basis a notification on your phone, oh, there's a new software update. Would you like to do it now or overnight? This might take 25 minutes, during which time you can't drive your car. Oh, you know what? I'll just let it do it now. I'm not going to drive it for 25 minutes. Or oh, I'll do it tonight. Schedule, midnight tonight. Please do my software update. Oh, look at that. The problem with my Windows is fixed. <laughs> I haven't tested it on one of mine, but I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't have the problem because when those updates come through, when I see the notification on my phone, I just say, oh, yeah, do it now, do it tonight. So it's probably already been fixed without me knowing about it. And that's where Elon Musk <laughs> is a little bit annoyed. He's saying to the NH- NHTSA, stop calling over-the-air updates required for Tesla a recall. We are mm. not recalling cars. Mm. That's those other guys. They're those losers out there <laughs> that can't do over-the-air updates. Ours, we just do things. But they also add features, of course. So I remember the first one I got didn't have the option of going slow. You just had the same speed. When you put your foot in the accelerator, the acceleration was the same depending on the model of the car. Mm. But there were some people who had cars and they said, I love the Tesla, I love everything about it, but when I do put my foot down hard, I feel sick. Now, mm. you'd think the solution would be, don't, don't put, put your foot down as hard. <laughs> that would be the obvious option. But Tesla heard this, so they introduced an option where you can just go into your dash and click a button. And I then saw suddenly, that, and it's called the chill setting. The chill the setting, chill, that's right. Chill, and it cuts <laughs> the acceleration approximately in half. shows up on your dash to show that you're in chill setting. But I know when one of my kids was doing her L-plates, doing her learn to drive, then I did put it in chill mode because I didn't want her accidentally to put her foot down the accelerator and we get thrown into the back of the seat while she's going, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm going 150,000 kilometres an hour. So that chill mode was added as an update. One day it wasn't there. One day it was there because there was a software update that occurred. Mm. Sometimes it's a little bit annoying, a bit like a phone update. You'll look at your phone one day, you do an update overnight, and the next day you go, oh, where's that function that used to be there? Sometimes you jump in your car and you go, oh, hold on, I used to go and open my glove box there. Where's the glove box button now? So little things like that. But in general, it's updating all the time. So this is the main complaint from Elon is they're not recalls. They're just over-the-air updates. We find things, we fix them. We find things, we fix them. Our customers out there don't need to be concerned, stressed, don't need to be panicking, don't need to find where the nearest dealer is to take it to them. They just have to say yes to the software update. We live in a brave new world. Renewable energy sources are a hot topic these days, and there are no perfect solutions. All the options have their pros and their cons. But if we're going to move on from fossil fuels, which are the least perfect of the energy options then we're probably going to need a combination of forms. And that's where new ideas become very enticing. Engineers have been trying to harvest energy from waves for some time, with limited success. Now, by cleverly thinking outside the box, we have the potential for millions of tiny little generators, let's call them nano-generators. Oh, yeah, nano. They're good, they're good. Generating power using wave motion, but as static charge, rather than from spinning a dynamo. Matt, what are the clever details here? This is just incredible, isn't it? Wave power, I get that. So you've got anything moving. Basically, if nature's got things moving, whether it be wind or whether it be waves, mm. let's take that and turn it into motion. Use it. Exactly, as you said, to spin something, a generator typically. And there are systems out there that use waves. Waves are coming in, they're going out. So let's keep spinning things to make some power. You've got these great systems I've seen installed underwater where they're using currents. So water will come in and out of those currents or as currents come in mm. and they're spinning something. This is a different concept. This is using the triboelectric effect. And with that, you get a bit of static electricity building up when different types of surfaces effectively rub against each other. And we see that you know, when you rub, say, a Party balloon. Party balloons on your head. Yeah. That made exactly your hair right. stand up. There you go. Perfect. So static electricity is generated there. Now, that's probably not enough just from doing that to power your home. You can't walk around your house <laughs> and be rubbing your, your balloon against your hair and Constantly. make it stand up. Yeah. Uh, might be, I've just got to turn the lights on. It's just got to rub this a bit It also comes here. with a, a rapid release of the charge as well, and you don't want that. You want a steady release into a, into a circuit. Yeah. yeah. What they've decided to try here, and it's actually, when I say try, it's actually operating now. There's a team in China that's actually doing it, and they've taken the idea of waves have got motion, fine. Let's run... Uh, an array of nanogenerators along inside a wave, and we know it's going to move. We don't care that it's spinning something or turning something. Mm. We know it's going to move, and we've got particles in there that are generating 
movement and or generating electricity, static electricity, with that triboelectric effect. And then let's capture that static electricity and then turn that into some real power to then use. Yeah, it wow. sounds incredibly complicated to me. When I, If someone pitched that idea to me, I'd say, no, it's got to be easier just to spin a turbine. Surely we've got the waves moving. Forget about this. But people are always exploring different and better ways. What I do like about this is that you don't need a lot of movement. So as long as there's some movement, you're not trying to get consistent movement in one direction or the other to spin a generator. You're just getting movement just in general because what you're relying on is substances rubbing against each other. That is the balloon on the hair type thing. So mm. you're getting substances rubbing on each other. So you're using wave power, but these substances are rubbing. Now, the only downside, some of the researchers have been talking about it, and the only downside is that when you're rubbing things together – you've got friction and that means that you've often got things wearing out. So heat's generated, things wear out. So do you need to then replace it in 10 years' time, whereas a generator might spin in the waves for 50 years' time? Not enough information to know about that yet, but they have been able to generate 347 watts of power per cubic metre, which you think, well, that's not a huge amount of power per cubic metre, but then when you've got an ocean to deal with Mm. and you've got waves in that ocean to deal with, well, that's probably not too bad. So you construct something that's got lots of cubic metres in it, drop that into the ocean where some waves are, and suddenly you're generating all this power. So that doesn't sound too bad. Um, That's about 30 times better they've achieved with this concept than other triboelectric designs. So they've obviously made some breakthroughs there. And so this is this whole new structure they're working on to try and get that better power density. When will we be using this? It's probably not in the next five years, But there's all this development happening as we keep shutting down coal-fired power stations. We're going to be having different ways of generating power. We're going to be having wind. We're going to be having solar. There's probably a bit of nuclear kicking around in there as well and lots of other systems, including something like this. But you've hit the nail on the head there too. I mean, waves have got a constant source of movement there and so it's a logical place to start. But... If this triboelectric effect sort of takes takes hold, then people start looking for all sorts of different ways to employ that. Yeah. And um, it becomes a much bigger thing and people feed off other people's ideas. It's the standing on shoulders of giants concept, isn't Bigger. it? Someone else came up with something and, oh, what if I try this? What if I... Next thing you know, someone's doing something completely out of the ordinary that no one could think of five years ago mm. because they've built on all these other ideas. But again, there are people out there, all these people that the naysayers, as you say, that are saying, oh no, we've got to keep burning coal. That's the only way we can generate power. There are so many different ways that we are generating mm. power, coming up with ways of generating power. Things that you and I and every other researcher in the world hasn't even thought of yet will be generating power in five years' time, in despite 10 years' time. Despite the naysayers. Yeah, despite them. <laughs> Thank goodness we don't listen to them. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling that someone is watching you? Well, probably. There are literally millions of surveillance cameras around these days, and if you don't want to be watched these days, it's probably best that you just stay in bed with the covers pulled tightly over your head. Surveillance is normal in 2022, but San Francisco police have been able to make a big step now and have approval from the city's board of supervisors to access private cameras in real time. I wonder how this is going to go down, Matt. Don't they have that now? I've seen in the movies. You just get someone in the police department who's their internal hacker. Tap into that camera and go. What's James Eddie up to now? Let's just have a look at his camera. Oh, yes, look, there he is. But it's maybe not quite as easy as that as in the movies. And there's also that little thing of the law, which you kind of hope that police departments are adhering to. Also follow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in this scenario, police in San Francisco have just been given approval to try for a one-year pilot program that it will allow police, exactly as you say, to monitor footage from private cameras. And when you see, again, going to the movies here, not assuming that they're completely incorrect in everything they present to us, we see things like cameras on traffic lights Hmm. or we see cameras that are public cameras. I know in the main street of our city here, we've got some public cameras that are monitored by the police. So you do have some public cameras, obviously, and they can help pick up things that happen in the public arena. But imagine all those cameras out there. And in the movies, someone knocks on a door. Hey, notice you've got a camera there. Can I see the footage? Have you got a search warrant? Is the normal answer that they give. (laughs) That's when it's the bad guy. If it's the good guy, they say, sure, come on in and I'll show you all that footage that you want to see. But in this scenario... They wouldn't need to knock on your door. They wouldn't need to go and get a search warrant. They would just need to say, we need to see what's happening down there at the corner of James's place. We'll just go and have a bit of a sticky beak at his cameras. That's all okay. Now, there are some potential things in place to try and stop them randomly just checking out what you're up to. But some of the civil liberty groups are saying, well, that can apply any time. So, for example, they say they've got to have some sort of 
misdemeanor, like a vandalism incident or maybe some property theft for them to go and look at it. There needs to be some justification. But it seems like the justification threshold is fairly low. Mm. Oh, I think I saw someone jaywalking. I better go and look at the street <laughs> there and all the cameras around that 500-meter radius of that street to see who it was there and did he jaywalk somewhere else. So that's part of the issue there. But it is getting to the stage, and maybe they're being more upfront about it in San Francisco. Maybe the police are doing it now, and they thought maybe we should just go through a process to legalize this a little bit yeah. and, and get there. Now, the only other thing that makes people feel a little bit more comfortable is theoretically you've got to give the police the power to do that for your private cameras. So you can say no. Oh, so private owners still have the opportunity. They still to- can say no, but I just wonder whether they do this for a year. They say, gee, that worked well. We solved an extra 10% of the crimes that were committed in San Francisco in the last year. Mm. Are you one of the people that have got a camera that we're not getting access to? Do you like crime in San Francisco? I can just hear the political rhetoric already. So I do think this is probably thin edge of the wedge. I do think, yes, people have to get permission and it'll happen, but then eventually we'll get the stage where the police will just have access to all of it. And again, it's a fine line, isn't it? If you're not doing anything wrong, do you care? But when I'm sunbaking in all my full glory in my front yard, do I really want the police looking at that? They probably wouldn't look at it for that long, would they? (laughs) They'd probably (laughs) find something else (laughs) much more interesting. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm also wondering, if you say no, do you then find yourself getting a whole lot of jaywalking tickets and stuff? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Let's see that tail out of your car. So, Oh, it appears smashed after I've hit it with my baton. (laughs) Not suggesting police do that, of course. Oh, back, back pedal, back pedal. There are no surprises that Elon Musk wants to stamp wants his stamp pretty much everywhere and he knows just how much kids want access to high speed internet so he's generously offering to put Starlink into rural school buses in the US. Matt, how's this going to go down? Very generous of him. He's offered yeah. just for a miserable $885.5 million there you go. to fit out some buses with Starlink technology so that kids on Can the bus TikTok. Oh, no, no. It's for their homework, James. Oh, sorry. Okay. So they can keep doing their homework on the way to school and on the way home. The Obviously, one of the great things about Starlink is low Earth orbit satellites. So you've got low latency. So it's almost like a normal internet experience. So that's fantastic. But initially, it was a dish sitting on your home and then connecting to a satellite. But they've now got a portable system. So you can actually put one of these on your camper van, for example, and then you park it in a caravan park and you can be on the internet wherever you might be. But this is now at the point where we're talking about a bus moving. Obviously, it would have some type of receiver mounted on that bus. Mm. And that bus would basically, or receiver transmitter would have to be, that bus is going to be able to be connected to the internet and then transmit Wi-Fi throughout the whole bus. Now, we do see it on some planes already, and they're not using Starlink. They're typically using geostationary satellites. But in this concept, I think the idea is great. I mean, I would have thought every kid would have already had some type of 4G or 5G connection anyway, because let's face it, they're kids. They can't survive unless they're connected <laughs> to the internet. So when I did start to read this, I think it seems a bit superfluous to me that you need to give kids internet access. But a part of this, which I think is reasonable, is making sure that everyone's got equitable access to education. So on the bus, there might be some of the kids who have got their great 5G phones and connections and can do all their homework, not TikTok, but they do all their homework. And other kids sit there and go, oh, I don't have that. I can't afford to have a connection to the outside world from my phone. Whereas having this on the bus would mean that every kid in that bus could have access to it. But it is actually one of the things I was asked recently at a a seminar that I presented at. They said, what's the biggest change you've seen in your 30 odd years in technology? And I did say ubiquitous connection. And It's not quite ubiquitous because it can't go everywhere, but that's one of the big changes that I've seen. You had technology 30 years ago, but you were isolated. Mm. You were on your own with that technology. You didn't have access to lots of external resources. Now, we do have the expectation that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we've got access externally somehow. And it is an expectation. And when when you're disappointed because you can't get that connection... It becomes enormously frustrating and it builds anxiety. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think this is really about trying to give kids that are maybe low socioeconomic or some of these bus routes are going in rural areas where they don't have cellular coverage. So Mm. maybe those kids even who do have the nice new phones and 5G connections still don't have coverage there and they still need to look at TikTok, uh, sorry, do their homework (laughs) while they're travelling along there. So I think it's interesting, but 
this is where we're getting to, isn't it? Where even if you don't have connection, because we're now getting these better satellite connections, that expectation that we have of having connectivity everywhere mm. is becoming a more and more realised expectation because people are trying to deliver it everywhere. School mm. buses, wow. I just, <laughs> I remember at college, I talked to a, a person who was at college a few years after me when I was at uni, and we had one phone for the college, several yes, college. Same. And, and when you're a fresher, you had phone duty. So you'd be on phone duty, you'd be allocated your, I don't know, one hour a week or whatever it might have been. Yep. And the phone would ring, you'd pick it up high, oh, who are you after, right? And you'd put them on hold and then you'd press the intercom and say, James, Eddie, phone call. And you'd run down, you'd have your five minutes on the phone and that was it. Yeah. And then I talked to one of the students afterwards and someone had left a bit of money to that particular college that I was at and they'd fitted a phone in every room. I went, wow, how cool was that? Imagine being able to ring up from your room, imagine being able to get your mum and dad to ring you in your room. Now, what a waste of money. Yeah. No one uses those. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Look at all these phone units that they had to throw out. Well, right, all the cabling they had to do, all the running yeah, of that system wow. in there. And it would have been a, a fairly hefty system because there were several hundred rooms in the college. Yeah. So imagine all that expense. Again, things move on, but we do have that expectation now that we've got access to stuff. But in, in those days, you're in your room, people could contact you by knocking on your door, or you heard the intercom. If you heard your name over the intercom, that was about it. So things have changed a bit. They certainly have. Okay, people, here's a name for you to note. If you haven't come across Saul Griffith, an Australian-American inventor and general ideas man, then keep your ear to the ground because it may be a name that has increasing ra uh, hit rate over the next coming years. He has a plan to decarbonise Australia, and it's bold, it'll ruffle feathers, and it's going to need you to be involved in it. But it just might work, Matt. It might work, and I'm glad to say that Saul got his ideas from me, I'm going to claim. <laughs> okay. Back in 2015, I did exactly what Saul Griffith is saying that we should do. Rid your household of everything that's producing carbon and electrify everything. So 2015 was when we finally got rid of our last car and that was a petrol car, so that was EV then. But we'd already changed our lawnmower. We've got a robotic lawnmower, so it's electric anyway, but we've got battery-operated whippersnipper. I've got battery-operated chainsaw. Now, mm. I'm not going to go down and cut down a forest with that chainsaw. It's not that big, but it's enough just to cut a few of those hefty branches off do a few trees. You've got to do, yeah. yeah, that's right. So everything we've got now is electric. Even when we built our house, and I'm going back 23 years ago now, I didn't like the idea of bringing gas into a house and having a gas stove, those sort of things. So I actually have a convection plate, a, a hot plate that's you know, not burning anything, that's not just putting heat through, it actually generates heat in the actual plates themselves, in the in the pans in the themselves. Pan, yeah, yeah. The induction cooking. In, yeah. Induction cooking, sorry, not confection cooking, induction cooking. So you've got everything in there is electric and, and that's fantastic. I love it. And people kind of laugh at me sometimes, well, you know, how do you get by with your whippersnipper when your battery's flat? And you say, well, you get another battery or you go inside and watch the footy for 20 minutes while you charge <laughs> up. So up, it's yeah. not that big a drama not being able to put petrol in it. And even in the old days of petrol, you'd go to put petrol in, you'd say, oh, I've ran out of petrol, I, I've got to duck down and get some. And then in the old days of mixing it up with two-stroke, no. oh, have I mixed up this battery already? I, I can't yeah. really tell. Do I double mix it and then have lots of smoke coming out or not mix it and then potentially seize the engine in my little two-stroke? I'll go a quarter mix rather than what I thought I should yeah. do. So all those things. So it's actually quite liberating when you do it. Now what Saul Griffith says is that, and, and this is a really great concept, we can all make a contribution because some people say, oh well climate change, whatever. I guess when they finally get rid of those coal-fired power stations and we go all renewables, that's okay, that'll be my contribution because I'll still be buying electricity. But no, what Saul says is that you can make a difference. Every one of us can make a little bit of a difference. He talks about 101 million devices, machines, whatever you want to call them, in households and across the nation. Things sitting in people's sheds and... All that yeah. stuff. So he's actually quite practical. He says, don't go out and throw all that stuff away now and buy new ones tomorrow. Everything you've got has got some sort of lifetime, some sort of time frame on it. Mm. So keep using your lawnmower if you've got to, but when you replace that lawnmower, which you're going to do at some point in the next five years maybe, then replace it with a battery-operated one. Mm. When you replace your gas hot water system, for example, then replace it with a solar one or even just an electric hot water system. And some people go, oh, well, electricity, if you're running your electricity, then that's burning coal, but more and more we're getting our coal from renewables. We're slowly, not as high as some other countries, we're slowly getting there with our production of electricity from renewables. Yeah. So you feel much better about 
using your hot water with electricity rather than using it with gas. Mm. So you're getting to the stage now where some estates, I've seen some new residential real estate or estates that are being built without running gas lines through it. Now, 20 years ago, that'd be a criminal offence. What? Mm. You expect me to build a house and you haven't even got a gas line run? You've got electricity run, you've got water, you've got sewage, but I need that gas line run as well. There's again some estates now because builders are saying to people that are building their house, do you really want a gas stove in there? Because it's not going to be too much further down the track. Either you're going to have trouble yeah. getting the gas or there's going to be some legislation that comes in to say you've got to get rid of that gas. Mm. So it's this gradual process of replacing 101 million machines. Gas house heating, so people that heat their house with gas, the, the water heaters I've mentioned, all those little everyday machines, all those little things that use something else besides electricity, just focus on replacing those over time. And before you know it, you've been a contributor to fixing climate change across the world. Of course, there are vehicles, we've talked about them before. That's a bigger purchase, but again, people say to me, oh, what's it matter? One car, big deal. You used to drive a petrol car, now you drive an electric car. Big, hairy, fat deal. What difference does that one make? And I said, not very much. But if everyone says, ah, not very much, and no one makes a change, it's not going to make any difference at all. But if everyone says, I'll make my little tiny bit of difference and replace my one car, if all those cars get replaced, suddenly 20 million cars in Australia are replaced, there's a huge difference that we can see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just about... Um, uh, an improvement mindset, isn't it? It is, that's right. So all of those things, so we can all make a difference. Just think about it when you're next doing some work around the garden or doing things in your house. Just think about all those things that are contributing to the problem of climate change. So when you cook your meal or when mm. you mow the lawn or whatever you might be doing, just think about those things and go, you know what, when I do replace this, I might replace this with something that doesn't contribute to the problem. Let's contribute to the solution, and that mm. sounds better. And then you might also start thinking about electricity you're using. You might put some more solar panels on your house, or you might go and buy power from a company that specifically says green power. And I know an organisation I'm involved with, recently there was about a million dollars we used to spend for one particular electricity contract, and that contract finished. And then the new contract, we went out to market to try and get some new prices there, we actually found that we saved $100,000 a year by choosing a company that exclusively said, we provide you green power. So that $1 million bill turned into 900000 and it's all green power now. Mm. Now, do you go and check the processes to make sure it is? I think most of the companies that are claiming that have got a pretty good track record of being able to demonstrate they are actually using green power. It's all about the winds of change blowing and wind of getting change. aboard. It's set your sails, folks. Is that a bad pun about wind power and renewable <laughs> energies? <laughs> Not at all. And on that note, it is time for us to literally pack our bags, make like a tree and leave. The taxi's waiting out the front and the meter is audibly ticking. Why would you put speakers on a meter? That's just weird. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for another absolutely cracking tech talk. I think you, James. Always good fun. And bon voyage. I'm off to see if my car up windows actually do bite and then I might just book some time in the emergency ward as well. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in again, folks. I'm James Eddy and it's been a pleasure bringing you another tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. Catch you in another week's time.